Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everybody, welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and today I am joined by a very special guest. And this is essentially part two of our series on Lutheran theology. And I have ventured out and reached out to an individual who has kind of experienced uh, a lot of what I have, but on a bigger scale. And so I thought it would be great to try and get him on the show. And he was. Uh, nice enough to allow that to happen. And so uh, I would like to go ahead and introduce my guest to you. Here is Flame. Yes. What's going on, my good sir? <laughs> yeah, not much, man. Dude, I, I am so appreciative of you taking the time out of your busy schedule and coming on the show. And I, and I really am, I really anticipate hearing what your you know story is. So could you really kind of um, paint the background for the audience on like what you've gone through in the last few years? I'll see if I can summarize it. Uh, Well, firstly, thank you for having me, man. I Mm -hmm. think this is going to be fun, informative. And um, so let's see. So basically, um, I was a Calvinist for, you know, 18 years, close to 20 years. And uh, it was an appealing systematic theology at a specific point in my life initially because as a young Christian, I was really trying to connect the dots in life and understand myself, my community, and just this big, crazy world we live in. And what attracted me to Calvinism on the front end was God's sovereignty. It's It was a systematic theology that sort of swallows up everything under God's sovereignty. God supremely rules. He's in control. And at the time, that was a set of teachings that really undergirded me and helped me sort of make sense of things. And, um, and it was exciting. And it was a, it was a, um, a set of teachings that was very intellectual, very structured, um, very didactic, very logically consistent. And that was really appealing to a young Christian who was just sort of filling his way through life, trying to put all the pieces together. But eventually I think I saw the other end of, you know, that set of teachings, at least from the Reformed Baptist side of things, that started to wane in its ability to uh, sustain me with the complexities of life, with the gray areas. And that system, in my experience, I believe I saw the logical expression of it, and it and it left me a bit depleted as I was trying to lean in on certain doctrines for comfort that in many ways turned around and bit me. And uh, things like, you know, um, unconditional election, irresistible grace, particular redemption, uh, if you want to call it that. It was teachings like that, that as I was, you know, getting older and figuring out the gray in life, those teachings were a bit more difficult to wrap my mind around. And I can flesh that out later, but that's sort of the summary of what got me praying and asking questions and revisiting scriptures that were, you know, well fixed in my mind. And that's what led me 
to a Lutheran school, which I, that's a funny story I'll tell later. But so, yeah, that's kind of how I got here, found Lutheran theology and was like, oh, my goodness, I've never heard these things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that was really my exact response when I started going through uh, seminary at my school, I was just like, I, I've never heard this taught before. Why is nobody actually talking about this in the church or on social media? It, it feels like there's just this hidden sort of theology that's just kind of kept away. And, yeah. and it just, it, it exploded in my mind. And it's like that just everything just kind of clicked and made sense to me. And so it was, you know, again, a big awakening for me. And, you know, I I wasn't a Calvinist for that long. I I think I was only in that circle for maybe a couple of years. Um, But I had the same reaction. Like it was very logical. It it could explain itself. It needed answers. It provided answers. But then I started to kind of get into this mindset of like, I just feel like there's something missing. And I kind of got into this, uh, endless circle of I feel like I can't get my assurance down pat and I feel like I I have to do all of these additional works and it's really I was just drowning in it so when when you kind of got to the end of your walk with Calvinism like what was some of the the red flags or maybe the, the the alerts or something along those lines that really just said I need to do something different and, you know, and then what really drew you to Lutheran theology? Cause that's a big change. Really? It is. <laughs> it is. So it was interesting because, so I didn't know that there was anything beyond Calvinism because mm-hmm. my training as a Calvinist taught me that the Calvinistic exegesis or basically style of studying the scriptures and, and seeing what's really there was the highest form of Bible study, if you will, or exegesis, right? So in my mind, I'm thinking the only place to go is backwards, which would be, according to my training, Arminianism. And I knew enough to know, okay, I see so many inconsistencies with that train of thought to not go there. Mm -hmm. But because I am exhausted with trying to live out this version of Christianity, I don't know where to go. So I felt stuck. So I was in a bit of a crisis. So, you know, at a low point, I'm thinking, man, do I leave Christianity? Do I utterly abandon my faith because I can't press any deeper into Calvinistic thought? And here's what it was. In the Reformed Baptist expression of Calvinism, there's a heavy emphasis on affections, motivations. So you're always looking within yourself and trying to drive deeper into your true joy and passion to be in God alone, right? So mm-hmm. if you if you think you're doing good, you can do better. If you think your motives are pure, they can be purer because, yeah. you know, total depravity says, you know, you're the, if you read the Puritans, you'll read things like you're a filthy maggot, right? Yep. So there's this, <laughs> this harsh language that already sort of deteriorates any sense of, um, I guess the doctrine of um, us being made in the image of God, even though that's affirmed in the Calvinistic construct, it's also sort of chiseled away when you think of how overemphasized total depravity is. You know what I mean? So it kind of puts you in that in that dance of trying to find that the sweet spot of mm. okay, I value myself, but I know I'm a filthy maggot. I'm nothing. I'm worthless. I'm 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 nothing to God. So you're trying to carry both of those things in your soul. And it's just an unhealthy space to dwell in. So for me, trying to continue to, you know, not to, you know, put names out there, but there's a famous mantra that says that God is more glorified in us when we're more satisfied in him. So when you take an idea like that and you're trying to, you know, glorify God more and more and more, how do you do that? You have to be more satisfied in him, more, more, more. So it's this moving target. It's this really undefined rubric that you have to meet to really be pleasing God. And I just couldn't plumb the depths of that experience. So I'm, I'm constantly weighing my motives, constantly, you know, trying to be as pure and as holy as, and as righteous as I could. But obviously as a sinner, uh, a sinner and a saint, um, I'm, I can't pull it off. And the more 
I lean in on myself to find some type of purity or assurance, again, it's chiseling away at this strong doctrine of justification that you get in the Calvinistic construct that really is borrowing from Luther <laughs> is mm. tweaked in many ways. But so they will affirm a strong emphasis on justification by faith alone. But then again, there are these other teachings that come on the back end and challenge it. So for me, I felt stuck. And uh, my only option I thought was either go back to Arminianism or leave Christianity. And in that sort of despair, I had a great conversation with one of my close friends who was also from St. Louis, which is my hometown. And he was in a, a Baptist seminary in California. And one of his Baptist professors told him, hey, if you're considering uh, continuing your graduates theological studies, when you go back home to St. Louis, make sure you go to Concordia Seminary. Don't go to any other seminary, right? So it's this mm. Baptist professor telling one of my best friends to go to Concordia. Long story short, he tells me about the conversation. So I say, man, maybe I need to check this school out if it's coming highly recommended from you know, your professor and mm -hmm. from you, a guy that I trust. So that's when I showed up on a campus just to take a tour and uh, at that point, I thought Luther and Calvin were lockstep. I still didn't know there was a major difference because, again, they sort of hijacked Luther's uh, clout, if you will, his reputation and in a Calvinistic construct. They'll use the good that Luther brought, and then they sort of tuck him away. And mm -hmm. then you think you understand Luther, and then Calvin sort of usurps all of that brand, all of that you know, um, reformation glory, if you will. <laughs> and yeah. then you think you have that with Calvinism. So I'm on campus thinking that. And eventually, as I showed interest and I, I wanted to commit, then I had to test into the school. So then you get a, a set of books you have to read through and then you have to take these tests. So as I'm reading through, I'm like, oh my goodness, there is a difference in Reformation traditions, I had no idea. Mm. And I was so intrigued, I wanted more. And I tested in, and that's when it all started. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, my um, my walk was, you know, I was moving along in the Calvinistic circles. And I had even contemplated going to a seminary that was more just non-denominational or even Reformed in its essence, just so I can kind of keep that mindset moving. And yeah some family members had suggested, why don't I look at some, uh, a couple Lutheran seminaries because, uh, at the time their church was an ELCA church and couldn't get a pastor. And they were struggling within the denomination, within that Senate to get, uh, pastors. And so I investigated it and I, again, I was really, I never really thought there was a, a significant difference. I just was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I could do that. I could work for a Lutheran church and probably still hold on to my, you know, Calvinistic teachings. And yep. I, I came across through a, a long story. I came across uh, Sioux Falls Seminary, which is funny. It's a Baptist seminary, but there's a branch that is uh, called Luther house. And it's basically three professors that run this portion of the ministry. And it's a, an extremely deep dive into the Lutheran theology and the history of it. And, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read any of his books, but Dr. Stephen Paulson's one of the uh, professors there. And okay. some of his books are kind of, um, I would say, are pretty instrumental, I guess, in the Lutheran doctrine, like to introductory to Lutheran theology and things like that. Yeah. And then he did ar armchair for Luther for armchair theologians. And yeah. so like these books were like just blasting me i'm like i don't wh where did this come from <laughs> and so like my first class was reformation history and i'm like oh man i'm gonna blast through this class i know all the things about the reformation history and i was like set and it was like day one i'm like oh that's a big reality check <laughs> and it was gut it was just gut-wrenching to me at how much difference i had you know held on to and so you know, enough of that. But, you know, when, when you started going to this, like, what were some of the things that you kind of carried into the school in your so-called backpack of theology that you were like, I can easily get rid of these things in terms of adopting the Lutheran thought. But some of the things that you, what were some of the things you really held on to? So like, what were easy to get rid of 
and what were some of the things that you really just fought tooth and nail to hold on to? <laughs> Man, okay, so so the the entry point for me was justification, mm-hmm. the doctrine of justification. So I found common ground, common language for the most part. So that was easy for me to sort of ride the wave into Lutheranism because I found common ground there. I found that um, it really supported what I believe as a Calvinist in terms of, you know, justification being by faith through grace alone, not by our works. So all of that felt very familiar. But the thing I didn't really um, have a category for was how initially justification by faith was always undergirded by the sacraments that have been completely Hmm. extracted from my understanding of justification as a Reformed Baptist thinker. So in my mind, anything that was, um, quote unquote, added to justification by faith alone was a work and, you know, should be condemned. So I resisted vehemently. Mm. (laughs) Um, Anything unique, supernatural, miraculous, divine happening in the sacraments, because coming from the Baptistic side of things, everything was symbolic, right? So the bread and the wine was really just another time to um, reflect upon what Jesus did long ago, 2000 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, baptism, same thing, you know, um, Baptists really use that time to, um, show the world that you're serious about Jesus, you know, when you're being baptized. Yep. So it's, it's considered your first act of obedience. So those two doctrines, I mean, I went down kicking and screaming, bro. Like mm. in class, I would have to, you know, obviously participate and write papers and, and engage. And I was I was that student that just I couldn't let it go. I, I, I saw scripture a certain type of way. And all of my papers, I, I wasn't being, you know, um, disagreeable just for the sake of. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to be honest. I was trying to have some integrity. I was trying to be myself. Right. And uh, but my professors were were very gracious and they understood my context. So I think they just, you know, took extra care in walking me through it and showing me how from my vantage point, I'm, I'm really at a disadvantage because I'm coming in with this confidence, but that's because I flipped the story on its head. So in my mind, the Reformation did not include any um, sacramental emphasis. It just, it wasn't present. And they had to show me You only see it that way because you understand the story upside down, Mm, you know. mm. Now, let me actually take you back to the Reformation where Luther was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. Here's what he actually believed in real time. You can read it Mm -hmm. and you can read things that Philip Melanchthon wrote and you can get in that headspace and see objectively what was going on there apart from how you've sort of been indoctrinated. So when I relaxed my resistance and just was able to see what was actually going on there, I was able to see how Calvinists later came in and made some major tweaks. And I couldn't ignore the evidence, Mm -hmm. right? That would be arrogant for me to just stick with what I believe and what I was taught just because it feels good, feels comfortable, and I know it to be right from my vantage point. Mm -hmm. But objectively, I said, man, I can't not see this. And uh, that's what helped me to continue to go where the evidence led. Nice. So um, I did not follow you in a sense as, you know, you're a musician. I did not really listen to any of your albums yeah. prior to 2020. <laughs> that's and, <fine. laughs> you know, you were spared. You were spared of I, my uh, <laughs> 18 years. Of... <laughs> you know, I and, and and I would say prior to being a Lutheran, um, you know, I probably searched for good Christian artists, and 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 I have a very broad taste in music. My my biggest focus is is classical. I love classical music. But occasionally when I'm just by myself, man, I love to turn on some rock or rap and just and just, you know, zone out. And and so I I try to find good Christian artists. I don't know why I never came across you when I was in my Calvinistic run. But (laughs) but I I do. You you said it. You know, I think God 
kept that until I started going to this Lutheran seminary and then you re you released extra notes. And, and it was like, I've listened to that and your uh, God is with us for Christmas and then Christ for you this year. I've listened to those albums hundreds of times <laughs> and, and, and so much. In fact, that when I go to the gym to lift weights, I have those on my playlist and nice. almost can recite them verbatim when I'm lifting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, I love it, bro. <laughs> you know, you, you said you've got 18 years. I'm kind of side tour here, the, the conversation a little bit. But you, how, how do you feel about some of those prior albums and content that you've talked about? Because, you know, the, 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 the interesting thing with the world today is all of the things that we've done before these, like, drastic shifts in our thinking are still out there and available for people to see and listen to. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It reminds me of uh, Luther when he was asked to denounce all of his works. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he's like, I can't, you know, because I believe even you all would agree with some of these things from mm -hmm. the Roman Catholic side of things. Mm -hmm. So I feel the same way. I feel like there's a large portion of the bulk of my material. I think all Christians can rally behind. Right. Just, it's very ecumenical. I'm just sort of championing what happened on the cross, the mm -hmm. resurrection, and how it affects our lives. Um, so, you know, for the most part, I'm happy with my past discography, but there are portions of it that was, you know, strongly Calvinistic, where I was actually didactically teaching Calvinism. And I've tried to address those. One in particular is a song I wrote called Who Can Pluck Us, mm -hmm. um, which is just a Calvinistic understanding of election, and predestination. So I addressed it on extra notes um, on one of the songs. I think it's, um, I forget the name of the song uh, <laughs> on, on extra notes, but basically I specifically walked through that song and I through through who can pluck us. And I, and I basically repent for my understanding of the scriptures there. And then I walk you back through a more healthy and historic Lutheran or just really the ancient church in, yeah. in terms of how they consider these texts. And many people have appreciated it. Even people from the Calvinistic circle um, have by and large appreciated it because like me, they've never been exposed to it. If you go through the academic space as a Calvinist, most likely you're not going to be exposed to Lutheran thought which to me is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I get it, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a business in terms of, you know, you got to keep the school afloat. So you can't be teaching another school of thought um, and, you know, potentially kick, pushing students away from your brand, if you will. Um, but I, I do appreciate that in my training at the Lutheran school, they wasn't intimidated to walk through Calvinism with us. They weren't intimidated. They didn't see it as a threat to... Lutheranism to expose Calvin's ideas, to compare and to contrast. I think it was a beefier academic experience letting in these other angles and perspectives and allowing the students to wrestle with them. I think it made us um, stronger in our faith to see all of these variations and, and ways of understanding the Reformation, but then coming out with a strong Lutheran understanding because it just holds. <laughs> it's um, and it's not really denominationalism. It's not like I'm out here saying, you know, be a, a, a Lutheran mm -hmm. just for mm -hmm. the sake of. So right. I'm not doing that. Really, I want people to find from Luther. I want them to see Paul. I want them to see Peter. I want them to see Jesus. I want mm -hmm. them to see joy and hope and peace and assurance that keeps us as we do good works in the world to, you know, restrain evil and to contribute good into society until Jesus returns. So I'm, I'm, I'm only going into this deep dive of theology for the sake of our regular mundane hmm. lives to yeah. find joy, hope, and peace. That's really my end game. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And, and I find that at least in my walk and my experience talking with people who are Calvinists there, I find because I can attest to it that there's more of this internal struggle of assurance. But when then I talk to Lutherans, they're just more comfortable in knowing and remembering the promises. And they're just kind of like, it's just beyond my control. I can't, I can't do nothing about it. And yeah. I, and I think that's really amazing. So, um, so 
I think we'll touch base on a few of the songs as we kind of go into these next few topics. But uh, you had cool. said early on uh, in regards to like the differences between limited atonements and some of the aspects of Tulip for that matter within leaving Calvinism. Could you expand on that a little bit for the audience? Because I, you know, most of the people are going to think of limited atonement as, you know, um, only so many, you know, the cross, uh, the death on the cross uh, was only for the elect. And, you know, that's it. it. You know, we draw the line there. But and and people are very stern in that, you know, piece of doctrine that they hold to. And that is a paradigm for me that is kind of shattered uh, of recent yeah. months, really, is just to think that this is bigger than what we can even possibly think by trying to proof text scripture. So yeah. I'm curious your thoughts really in that realm and then kind of overall in, in the tulip aspect. Yeah, man. Uh, I was definitely a five point Calvinist and, you know, I, I understand the appeal of limited atonement or a particular redemption because, you know, there are texts that, seem to communicate something like that. So I, I understand that these people aren't, um, or Calvinists, I guess from the Presbyterian side of things or the Reformed Baptist side of things, they aren't grabbing these ideas out of thin air. They mm -hmm. are, you know, most people are genuinely seeking truth from the scriptures and they have, you know, passages to back up their claims. And I can appreciate that because it, it, it does show a reverence for God's word. And that's what it was for me. It wasn't that I was trying to be in some secret club or some, you know, pursuit of pride. Jesus died for me and not mm -hmm, you, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was something that was comforting because you felt like, or I remember feeling like, man, you know, made amongst all these people in the world, Jesus died for me in particular. I'm one of the people that he thought about and had in mind on the cross um, so that, that brought a sense of comfort and I appreciated it, but I do remember, you know, as I would travel the world, literally almost every continent, except like Antarctica, right? Couldn't mm -hmm. do any concerts there, but, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I, I, I remember always feeling in my heart, uh, very uncomfortable, not being able to tell all of these diverse groups of people that Jesus died for them. Mm. And, and it was always just this somber part of the gospel presentation for me personally because mm -hmm. I I didn't I didn't come up as a Calvinist as a Christian. I came up probably in just a generic American denomination. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I remember having to relinquish that. And I never forgot it. So while I'm on stage I just uh, I always felt like man I wish I could tell everybody like I used to that Jesus died for them. But you know to to get more specific to your question over the course of my time in seminary, I was really hunting down con contrasting arguments for that doctrine mm -hmm. because I wanted to know what did the Lutheran tradition teach about particular redemption. And so I went to all this, you know, the specific passages that were, you know, Romans 9, which is a beefy, difficult passage mm -hmm. uh, of a collection of scriptures to, to think through. Um, you know, and I revisited um, Ephesians 2, where it talks about, you know, um, God predestining us before the foundation of the world. And uh, so I'm, I'm hunting down all these scriptures to see what Lutherans thought about these texts. And, um, and so I found, one, other ways that seem to be more consistent with the ancient church's exegesis of these passages. And it was there that I found some ground to stand on when I thought about these men who were closer to the apostles, who were close to um, Jesus himself, probably a few centuries removed. Mm -hmm. And then I found, you know, Luther trying to stay consistent with, you know, because he doesn't want to study in a vacuum. So he's always reaching back to make sure he's not pulling his ideas out of thin air either. Mm -hmm. And when I saw a collection of men um, and women who were, you know, very erudite, very intelligent. They they studied the languages. They cared deeply about the text. And and when I saw these people coming away from those scriptures without Calvin's interpretation, that made me feel a sense of assurance because I said, okay, 
as a Calvinist, they sort of made Armenians seem less than, I don't know, erudite, we'll just say. They, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even the ones that they would kind of credit with being, you know, serious exegetes, you, you kind of were taught to see the folly in their line of thinking. So you kind of didn't really take Armenian thoughts seriously, unfortunately, in many ways, and, and rightfully in others. But I found solid ground seeing men and women who knew the original languages, who took these texts seriously, and they did not come away from the scriptures seeing that Jesus only died for a specific group of people and everyone else had been predestined for eternal damnation or Mm. something to that effect. So that, for me, really set me off on a course of knowing that I didn't have to hold on to Calvin's view as some exceptional, high form of exegesis or, you know, so that really helped me start over, right? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, good. I I can kind of relax my Calvinism and I could just go where the text leads. So that's the mindset behind it. That's so I don't know if you want me to go into, you know, (laughs) specific Bible studies and how I thought through it, but that was the mindset that helped me relax my a firm grip on that's what this text means. If it says, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a specific scripture. Okay. For example, like with Caesar, when he, um, he does a, he demands a census of all his people within mm-hmm. the Roman diaspora, right? He wants to know who's, who's here, how many people in your household, everyone needs to register, right? Mm-hmm. So Caesar says, he says, everyone in the world, needs to register. And what Calvinists have done with that text is they'll say, see, when Caesar says everyone in the world needs to register, he's not talking about people outside of the Roman um, diaspora. He's he's talking specifically to people within um, his authority, under his authority, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, the, but he used the word world. So he uses this word that seems to be universal in a limited way. Mm. And when I heard that argument as a Calvinist, I said, man, I, I never saw that nuance, that strong evidence for when Jesus is making claims to have died for the world, that that word may seem universal, but it's really um, limited. Mm. But then, you know, through my time in Lutheranism, they humanize Caesar. They said, okay, let's look at that afresh. Um, When Caesar's using the word world, he is talking about everyone universally in his world. Mm -hmm. So everyone he has in mind under his authority needs to register. In fact, he is talking about everybody without exception. Right. And so that, that, humanized him and took him out of a being a uh, you know a proponent for a Calvinistic way of thinking to showing how oh this is how people use words in regular life right so it, it helped me to see him as a regular human who used the word world the way I would if I was saying look everybody everybody in the world knows who um, Jesus is if I said something like that mm-hmm. you would you would have to wonder, who do I have in mind when I use the word world? Right. If if I'm using that in a in a limited way, um, in a specific way, shall I say? But in the specific way I mean it, I mean what I'm saying that everybody in my specific way does know about Jesus. It's universal. You know what I'm saying? Now that may be a little confusing for the people listening to this back, but <laughs> the point is, <laughs> the point is, it was those types of nuances that were tricky for me. Mm-hmm. And I had to find a way to deal with them because they seem very strong in the Calvinistic construct. Right. And when you when you looking for the simple and plain meaning of the text, um, that's the safest way to go, rather than doing all the mental gymnastics. And you see how muddy muddy that sounded yeah. when I had to run it through the Calvinistic way, and then it made it difficult to even follow it right. after. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. kind of that kind of thing you get caught up in. Yeah. yeah. And I think you just shattered some paradigms for people listening. I hope. Because, because, you know, that was my, my, one of the biggest holdups for me, it was like, well, John writes about the world, is he meaning the entire world in this portion? But then over here, 
Calvinists will say, no, he's only talking about a limited scope. And then over here, you know, and it's like you said, it's a lot of mental gymnastics going back and forth. Yeah. Um, Because real quick, if I can say this. Yeah. So there are passages that seem to allude to Jesus dying only for Israel. Mm -hmm. There are passages that seem to allude that Jesus died only for the elect. And then there are passages that explicitly say um, that God desires all men to be saved and that none should perish. Right. Mm hmm. So when people ask me who did Jesus die for, I say I say yes to all of those, right? Mm-hmm. Did Jesus die for Israel? Yes. Did Jesus die for the elect? Yes. Did Jesus die for everyone without exception? Yes. Mm. <laughs> who will draw on the benefit of Jesus's death on a cross? Um, those who believe. So in that in that way, anyone can be the elect. Anyone who believes can be the elect. And that seems to be the plain meaning of the text when you allow each one of these passages to shine forth, because the Bible says them all. You don't have to only go to your favorite text to prove Jesus only died for the elect or for Israel, because now with the social climate, there's a group of people called the Hebrew Israelites, Mm -hmm. and they sound very Calvinistic because they argue that Jesus only died for Israel. Now, obviously, they would argue that African-Americans are the true Israel. Therefore, Jesus only died for um, African-Americans. And I say I say to them, man, you sound very Calvinistic. And I say to the Calvinists, you sound like a Hebrew Israelite. Mm. And that both groups are trying to limit Jesus to only dying for some specific cluster of people. Yeah, wow. But the Bible shows that Jesus died for everyone. Who will benefit from that? Those who believe. And obviously, God is behind the scenes doing his thing. Mm. But there's this... There's this phrase Lutherans use, crux delegorum, the theologian's cross, uh, which just simply means um, there's this aspect of election that's beyond us. And we Mm -hmm. have to bow our knee and submit to the fact that a lot of this is above our pay grade. God Mm -hmm. is behind the scenes doing things, but we as humans are participating in terms of being human, using our brains, hearing sermons, hearing messages, going to spaces where the gospel is being preached. That's all happening while God is behind the scenes working. So we don't have to find answers for all of those, which is unfortunately what happens oftentimes in the Calvinistic spaces, sort of trying to find answers for those mysteries. Mm -hmm. And one person told me in the Calvinist, if there was a circle, Calvin feels the need to close the circle. Luther's okay leaving the circle open right where it should close. Mm -hmm. He's okay with that tension. He's okay with that, that space of, yeah. mystery so yeah yeah that's actually goes right into my next question really well because i had an encounter with um a calvinist and sadly our friendship has kind of fallen away to the wayside due to mm. theological differences but yeah in in his argument against lutheranism he 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 balks at the idea that we hold that we're okay with allowing scripture to be a mystery in some elements like you know we'll get into the lord's supper here in a few minutes but you know these types of things where we just you know the scripture says something we believe it but there's still an element of mystery to it that we can't explain without trying to draw upon some philosophical or logical man-centered explanation to it Uh, what are your thoughts entirely around you know, the, how Calvinism is very philosophical and logical versus Lutherans, which have been accused of being more open to the mystery, essentially. Yeah, I love that. Great question. I, I feel like as a Calvinist, I thought I, I didn't think that about Lutherans, um, but I thought actually that as Calvinists, we were more comfortable with mystery and tension. Mm. Uh, but then when I became a Lutheran, I found out that that was not the case. Um, when I started to show people mystery and tension and paradox who were Calvinists, and I saw how uncomfortable they were with it. And I said, man, that was once me. I guess I thought I was more comfortable with those aspects of the Bible, but I really was not. So, for example, um, I think it's not honest. Like, I think if if you're a Calvinist, you don't understand the Trinity the way you might think you do mm-hmm. in terms of fully grasping the the beyond us <laughs> nature of one being in three distinct persons. You can't with full integrity say, oh, I get that. 
You just can't. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus being fully man and fully God, you can't honestly believe you think you can wrap your mind around those things. But here's where I think it goes wrong. In the Calvinistic construct, there is, in, at least let's just go with Christology or the study of, of Jesus's nature, right? Mm -hmm. So Calvin, um, he sought to provide explanation for some of the mystery. And it got him into a lot of trouble. There was this mantra that he repeated from one of his big homies, uh, uh, Zwingli, Zorik, um, uh, Zwingli. Mm -hmm. And the, the mantra was that the finite is not capable of the infinite, right? So that was something that Calvin repeated from Zwingli. And it shows up in places like where you see Jesus walking on water. Mm -hmm. Calvin, Calvin says, well, he... He, he most likely changed the nature of the water so that it can become walkable. Mm. Or when Jesus, when Jesus shows up and, and uh, you know, seems to have walked through um, a door and just appears on the other side, you know, Calvin says, well, obviously he came through some type of window or something that, you know, that we didn't see or that the text doesn't give us because in his mind, he has to stick with that mantra Mm -hmm. that the finite is not capable of the infinite. So you do see, historically at least, that Calvin was not comfortable with those things, and he sought to find some type of philosophical, rational explanation for those things. And and honestly, that's just a bad way to do Bible, you know? Yeah, and yeah. Luth Lutherans are very comfortable saying, I don't understand that. It's just something God can do. And I'm going to humble myself and embrace that mystery. The thing is, we're comfortable doing that wherever it shows up. And, um, you know, it does make for a strange conversation when you can't fill in those gaps. And mm -hmm. it makes us seem like we don't have answers. But but that's the safest place to be. We right. go with what God has revealed. And, and that is the humility I believe God has in mind for us. It's, it's us bowing under the reality that we're just humans we're limited and mm. god is way bigger than our ability to understand mm. that's crazy yeah. yeah and it's funny i think to kind of go along that um and one of your songs i off the top of my head i don't remember which one you you kind of go down that that pipeline and you're talking about how you know you try to you know calvinists will try to explain all thing all these things but they're okay with jesus shattering the skies open they're okay with that being you know uh, yeah. a, 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 you know, a defined mystery itself, but all yeah. these other things, they want to try to logically explain something away. Yeah. So yeah. let's, let's change the pace a little bit. Um, okay. And I want to look at kind of the, the major sacraments. Cause I find that to be, you know, some of the biggest dividing points in the, in our theology. I mean, we can, we can talk about faith and application of faith and, and, you know, theology of the cross versus theology of glory and all those things. But I, yeah. I think most people are going to probably r recognize that the big difference between Calvinism and Lutheranism um, and even Arminianism <clears throat> lies in the sacraments yeah, and, and the application of the sacraments. So give me really quick your your view on baptism. Cause I want to say the Lord's supper for uh, last, since you wrote an entire album <laughs> on that one. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, my, my view of baptism would be consistent with, um, you know, uh, the Lutheran confessions, uh, the book of Concord um, and, and much probably overwhelmingly. So with the ancient church um, in that, on the cross, <clears throat> excuse me, is where Jesus earns salvation. Mm -hmm. um, but through through baptism is where Jesus applies that grace and that salvation. Um, so that gets into infant baptism. So yeah, so I'm I'm now a confessor of um, the miracle that God uh, works in the life of His children through baptism, uh, starting with infancy. Uh, also within adulthood, if someone is, you know, coming to faith later, uh, I believe what Peter says, that baptism now saves you. Um, and I know that's uncomfortable because 
in the generic American Christian perspective, the concept is flipped on its head. So it sounds like a work. Mm -hmm. That was the thing I, I needed to hear because I, to me, it sounded ridiculous to mm. imagine that baptism could remotely um, be a means or a tool or a vessel whereby which God applies salvation. It just, it was offensive, actually. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, but when I understood that what was happening in baptism, historically speaking, the way you go all the way back to those who were nearest to the apostles, um, and you come all the way up through the, to the Lutheran Reformation, there was this understanding that there was a miracle taking place that God was doing the work in baptism. The, you know, the, the priest or the, the pastor is just one who is administering this sacrament, but the work that's actually happening, the salvation that's being applied is, is a miracle. It's something supernatural is happening that is beyond um, what humans are doing at the moment. It's God saving. And mm. the reason why you have to know that is because if you think of it from just your generic Baptistic American way of thinking, it's taught as your first act of obedience. Right. So we're already conditioned to think it's us or mm. making this public proclamation and showing people I'm now affiliated with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying it's not that, um, that that's not a part of it, um, but that's it's not us doing any work there. It's God doing the work. And we have legs, we have arms, so we walk to the, you know, the baptismal font. That's mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that we're doing the work, but when the water is applied, it's it's nothing in the water, it's God's word connected with this external thing, water. And it, and therein lies the miracle. It's God using his word with this external thing um, that's working this miracle in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's not this act of obedience. It, that's not a work that I'm doing to add to my salvation. So that's the gist of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've been in the crux of having all of these interesting conversations around baptism. And, and I'm going to pose this question to you and and see how you answer it and yeah essentially to say that if baptism saves then we should just go around and shoot everybody with a super soaker announcing <laughs> them to be baptized in the name of the father son and the holy spirit what would you say to a uh, a statement like that yeah i understand that there is a um you know a school of thought out there that uses baptism as sort of magic, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. you, could, you could just go out and, and, and against people's wills, um, bring them into the benefits or the covenant of God's people, um, which would not be the case. So, so the point is, um, faith, faith is present. Um, you know, so God grants faith. He gives the gift of faith. The Bible mm -hmm. says in Ephesians two. So, um, though there's something real happening when the water is applied, faith must be exercised. Mm -hmm. So if a person is, you know, um, receiving the waters of baptism, but in their internals, in their mind, in their heart, they don't believe God exists. They're hostile to Christianity. They're just going through this rite or this ritual to make their mom happy. Um, then obviously you don't get the benefits of the miracle that is present in your midst. Mm -hmm. So it's, so it's not magic. It's, um, you know, very much. So, um, faith must be present and obviously God gives the gift of faith, but we can resist that faith. And mm -hmm. that's where also we will part from Calvinist Calvinists will say that grace is irresistible. You cannot turn down God's grace once you see it. Yeah. And, and that sounds great. But when you look at the scriptures, you know, you see replete throughout the Bible in the New Testament mm -hmm. where people resist. Jesus says in Matthew, hero Israel, when I came to you, you resisted me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Um, so that's just one text among many that shows God can be present with grace. Um, 
but you can resist them in your heart because mm. you know for whatever reason so that's how i respond to that that's that's good i like that that really hits it on the head so yeah. again in conversations that could probably go on for another hour with baptism uh i want to change over to this uh to the idea of the lord's supper because uh you know obviously another sacrament but you wrote an entire album this yeah. year uh, christ for you <laughs> and yeah. and i i tell you what i i have sent this to a bunch of my friends and i have listened to this album like on repeat uh, <laughs> and, and i kid you not before i did my um lent services this year i would nice. be in my office wednesday night playing this album just to kind of get myself in that mindset because I was going to teach on, uh, some, on these elements. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, bro. <laughs> and, and I, and I used some of your, you know, kind of the, the arguments that you bring. I mean, they're amazing in how you do that. So when we, when we talk about the Lord's supper, obviously there's a few different schools of thought. Um, can you go and clarify kind of the big difference between the Calvinistic thought process and the Lutheran thought process on this. Yeah. So, okay. So within a Calvinistic construct, you will have Presbyterians and Baptists, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So for the Baptists, they, they, the bat, the Baptistic Calvinist, for them, they're still more Baptists in their thinking. So, um, there's, there's nothing happening in the sacraments. And I, and I don't say that in a condescending way. All I'm saying is, for them, it's just symbolic. The mm -hmm. bread and the, and the grape juice <laughs> really is just a time to think about what Jesus did mm -hmm. on the cross yep. for us. And they, they take it seriously. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not done in some careless way. Um, there is deep meditation. There is, um, you know, deep pondering. And, and I can appreciate that they're seeking to honor something Jesus says, which is, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So I can appreciate that. Um, but the thing that, you know, okay. So that's that from the Baptistic side of things. Mm -hmm. the, the, the more Presbyterian side of things in the Calvinistic world would be, no, it, it's more going on, going on at the Lord's table than just symbolism, another time to reflect. So they would say there is a sense in which Jesus is present spiritually according to his divine nature. So, mm. so there's some type of spiritual reality of Jesus being present, but then also they'll, they'll, they'll say that um, what also happens is the Holy Spirit takes us up into God's presence as we participate in this meal. Wow. So, you know, that's an interesting take. Um, and I can see Calvin probably was trying to find a middle ground between Zwingli, his other big homie, and Luther, his first big homie. You know what I'm saying? So he's trying to sort of tread in the middle and find um, something that would bring these two ideas together. That's noble, mm -hmm. but it goes beyond the scope of the scriptures. So that's where it, it, it goes awry, goes left. And Lutherans... Uh, are again willing to let the scriptures speak in total. Mm -hmm. So um, Lutherans confess with the ancient church that what's happening at the Lord's table is um, present there. There is bread and wine, so there's no need to deny that. So it is bread and wine. Paul talks about this in you know First Corinthians ten. He says mm -hmm. this bread, um, this is Jesus's body. Then he says this wine. This is Jesus's blood. So he affirms that the elements are real. Mm -hmm. There's actual bread and wine. But then there's there's something supernatural that is happening, which is Jesus is bodily present. Yeah. And you say, how can this be? I don't know. <laughs> That's why you get these random prepositions in, with, and under. Mm -hmm. And even Luther's like, look, I'm just using these to say some kind of way Jesus is present bodily because he said he is. Yeah. And we're we're letting the scriptures speak. And that makes people uncomfortable because it doesn't make sense on this side of the enlightenment. Right. But we really pride ourselves on mm. logic, reason. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think out of all of this uh the songs, and I and I, I do have to recite some of these lyrics from the Passover Lamb. And because <laughs> I mean you just 
I think you just came out <laughs> swinging on this one. You say, now you're changing words, changing definitions. I thought you were sola scriptura. Ain't that your position? Oh, that's right. You're modern men. You reject the fathers and rules of grammar then. The enlightenment, sheesh, it finesses all. We are rejecting Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. Wow. And <laughs> I, every time I hear that, I just man, it hits me because it's like how obvious is it when scripture says one thing, but then we try to, again, change the definition of something or we try to make it sound better or make us feel better about its sort of understanding um, because it's just there's something in it that makes us uncomfortable about it. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. So one, uh, one, I'm talking to myself as well, right? Because mm -hmm. I too was, you know, um, against. Really, I was offended by all of these ideas. They sounded like a threat to mm. Christianity. I remember praying to God, Lord, am I joining a cult? Please protect me, protect my mind, guard me. So I was, so I was offended by these ideas. So, you know, that same arrogance, if you will, was in myself. And mm -hmm. then I also, when I look out, I see it in us as a post-enlightenment people. And, um, you know, the lines are in your face, blunt, but that's that's really what's kind of going on, if we're honest, because these ideas weren't as offensive on the, you know, the the, the other side of the Enlightenment, the, the pre-Enlightenment, mm -hmm. right? That there was a there was by and large a fifteen hundred year and counting consensus of what was taking place at the Lord's table. So they didn't have the culture pushing against them saying, you see how ridiculous that is? You mm -hmm. see how ridiculous that is? Right? So they didn't have to resist these supernatural realities the way we have to because we're on the post side of the Enlightenment. So um, if there is a bit of arrogant, arrogance there that we just can't even sense within ourselves because of where we are on the timeline of history. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, we, yeah. and if we can, that's the good thing about church history. It, it allows you to move outside of your own space mm. to see what others have thought about these texts and we need to use that as a strength as we reason through the bible so that we don't lo lose ourselves up against the, the goliath of the culture this mm -hmm. giant these giants of ideas that constantly make us feel ridiculous in some of the things that we believe but i always say if we're honest all of Christianity sounds weird and ridiculous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a, a virgin birth. I mean, really? You know what I'm saying? Resurrection from the dead, all of the a trinity, the Holy Spirit coming as a dove, mm -hmm. talking serpents, all of these things really sound ridiculous to modern man, postmodern man. Yep. So yeah, you don't really get any cool points for <laughs> <laughs> not believing in the sacraments, but still calling yourself a Christian. Right. The world still thinks you're weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, I, I think that kind of hits all the points that I was wanting to engage you upon. And, Perfect. you know, and I appreciate <laughs> you telling your story at the beginning and touching on some of these, these doctrinal topics, uh, because it's, you know, when you get down to the crux of it all, I mean, people just often get lost in yeah. this big battle that seems to be raging on. So uh, I, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of time here, but I want one last kind of point, and it's a very easy one. Um, if you, what advice would you have for somebody who's really struggling with assurance um, or they really just battle within kind of their own mindset? because of the, their Calvinistic holdings, or maybe they're lost in the middle of all of these sort of uh, camps that are out there. What would you say to that person? Man, uh, one is so relatable. I was there, you know, just struggling my way through um, sin, sin patterns, uh, too much introspection, you know, so I understand the, the trauma that that wreaks on your soul. So just, you know, take comfort in the fact that it's very relatable. You're not weird. You're not abnormal. You're you're regular in the sense of it's we all struggle through things within ourselves that we wish wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is the way Calvinism has conflated or merged um, justification and sanctification is probably where you're stuck. 
and you can't find any more pavement to walk on. Um, but what Lutheranism has done is it's, it's, it's brought clarity and hope for you to show you that justification by faith alone is a completed work that God establishes in us by faith, a faith that he provides. And then sanctification is an incomplete work. It's this, it's this thing that we wish was complete like justification, but mm-hmm. it's not. And the Holy Spirit's wisdom, he left it incomplete. So what he wants us to do is to think more about our good works towards our neighbor. So if you can move yourself out of the thinking that you're trying to please God and go deeper into pure motives and purity and and, and showing God how serious you are about holiness mm. to the point where you're willing to almost beat your flesh to mm-hmm. show him that you do hate these sins. <laughs> if you can, if you can relax that, that insane process and see, you know what? Ah, I'm justified by faith. Thank you, Lord. I'm already mm-hmm. accepted. Mm-hmm. I'm assured because of what you've done. Now my role is simply to do good works in the world towards my neighbor. And along that way, I will be concerned with how I live my life morally because I want to respect my wife. I want to respect my employer. I want to respect my sister, my brother, and all the people I engage with my behavior. But I also want to contribute good works in how I serve them with my talents, with my skills, or whatever role I find myself in. So now you're not thinking always, does God accept me? Does God like me? You're turning that outward towards the world in good works knowing that you are assured by faith. And that shows you a path of hope, of joy, that you can get busy in the world, not being afraid that you are not good with God. Mm. And uh, yeah, let that sort of bring oxygen to your <laughs> your soul and your mind as you, yeah, relax and, and, and receive this peace and this joy of this completed work of justification. Man, it's beautiful. And it's great advice to those who are out there struggling. So... Um, you know, I, I think this conversation could probably go on for a couple more hours, but uh, <laughs> I want to be respectful to, to your time. And, uh, and I'm sure you've got a busy afternoon ahead. Cause I do for sure. I got confirmation yeah. in a couple hours for the, get oh, rid- wow. yeah, I gotta, I gotta snap these kids in line and <laughs> take them through the, uh, Luther's catechism tonight. So, nice. yeah. So if you, uh, as we go ahead and sign off here, um, anything that you would, uh, like to add here to the end, any sort of resources you want to give, you know, terms to people to look up or anything that you want people to know about you or where they can find you. Obviously you're all over Spotify and iTunes and that. So uh, yes. <laughs> I want to I make sure that uh, you give you the proper shout outs there. So, yeah, for sure. So uh, yeah, a few things. So I developed uh, along with a couple of partners, an app for the book of Concord. Oh yeah. I love it's it. Called- <laughs> yeah, it's called Evangelical Catholics. So mm-hmm. You can search that on either you know, uh, app store. You can get the Book of Concord at your convenience on your phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two two great books that really helped me um, by Jordan Cooper. Mm. Um, the book is called The Great Divide, A Lutheran Evaluation of Reformed Theology. So for all the Calvinists out there who are struggling and thinking about these things, great resource. And the other one is The Spirituality of the Cross by Gene Veep Jr., um, the way of the first evangelicals, two great resources that'll really help you think these things through. And yeah, find me all over social media at Flame Three One Four. Extra knows Christ for you. All my music is available wherever music is sold. So yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Brilliant, I love it. And Jordan is uh, has been instrumental to helping me, you know, throw out some of that stuff in my backpack. So um, definitely <laughs> kudos to that. So. God, yes. uh, I, I, I can't thank you again enough, Flame, for coming on, and um, I hope this has been edifying and educational to those people who are even staunch five-point Calvinists. I hope it just gives them the, you know, the, the opportunity to think differently. Yeah, for sure. Excellent, bro. Thank you. So, guys, we're going to go ahead and wrap the show, and we'll see you guys next week.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.